Good morning. It's, it's really, uh, it's just a cool thing when you see um, someone baptized, no matter where it is. I baptized many people in the ocean, which is kind of fun. I have hosed them down out back. Uh, recently baptized two people in a hot tub. So it's just kind of, it's just cool to see someone give their life to Christ. And Josh is a special young man. We've spent a lot of time together, and he asks questions that nobody knows the answer to. So I just make it up. He probably didn't know that. But just the fact that he has a, 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 he's so intelligent and just constantly seeking, wanting to know, what does this mean? What does this mean? And that's, uh, that's really what God wants. Sometimes we try to be cool and act like we know we got it going on. And all God wants is for you to say, Lord, I want to be more like Christ, and, and I'd, like to, I'd like to know this, I'd like to know this. And it, it's so refreshing to see a young man who just kind of a sponge and, and uh, just want to absor- absorb what uh, he can about the Word of God. Uh, I, I pray that I can always be like that, that uh, I want to know more. If you ever think you've arrived, guess what? You have not. I can promise you that. I've uh, told you many times, 19th of this month, I will have been a Christian for 51 years. And when I first got saved, I, I figured, well, I, I got it going on. I know everything. And uh, went back home and began to share that with my two siblings who are not Christians and my father, and my mother was, but, and uh, they quickly let me know I didn't know what I was talking about and they didn't want to hear it anymore. And uh, so over the years, and, and just you know, sharing the Lord, and my father's uh, came to know the Lord and went, has gone home. But today, as a prayer request, as we're praying, and there are a lot of things to pray about, but on a personal level, today is my brother's 70th birthday, and he's going through a very hard time himself now physically uh, with some health issues, and I talked to him a week or so ago, and again, trying to share the gospel with him, and he just doesn't want to talk about it. It's uh, not something that's uh, on his radar, but when you're 70 and you've got a very serious health condition, uh, life has your attention as well as death has your attention. And the beauty of being a believer, we shared it last week, Easter Sunday, that resurrection that every day dawns in our lives. It's a new day in Christ, that it's, it's an opportunity to share the gospel, to live it, so um, it's just exciting to see someone come to know Christ and for us to be part of welcoming our brother into our fellowship. So, Josh, you the man. All right, is this light that's on my podium, is it up where it needs to be? And you might want to check the air conditioner. I see a number of people fanning. So thank you, thank you. That helps a lot. So if, if we're cool, we're cool. Chad, Chad will handle that part. All right, turn to the book of Esther, if you haven't already. Esther chapter 7 is where we are today. I do want to mention one thing to you as we get started. This Saturday is the third Saturday of the month, so we will be doing what? Some of you, some of you didn't say that excitedly like Tiffany did. Help group, help day. Third Saturday of the month at the Bartley campus. 
And if you've never participated, you, you are the one that will be blessed if you can just come and, and see what the Lord does, makes possible through your giving and through uh, just a, uh, an amazing thing to, that the Lord has set up and Chris Ellison has put together. And, and uh, Donnie Curlin got us into it years ago, and Chris took over when Donnie fled to, to uh, that godforsaken Arizona. So we're excited with the, what God does uh, every month. It looks like everybody in town is now doing it, and uh, that's okay. That's cool. We're just glad that we can help be part of it. And if you come, you can get a nice haircut free like Cameron. Do you, you fall asleep or something? Cameron fell asleep at the barber. I could do that. It wouldn't make any difference. But all right, Esther chapter 7. So this Saturday, well, the primary time is about 9 to noon. If you want to come early and help set up, you can do that. You want to hang around afterwards and help tear down, you can do that. But particularly from about 9 to noon, we uh, could use as many bodies as possible this coming Saturday, and hopefully we will have good weather. All right, if you look at the top of your handout, as we get back into our series in Esther, we've got four chapters left, Esther 7 through 10. And 10 is like three verses, but I can take that in, I can make that three years, because it's a gift, but I won't. All right, we're going to look at Esther 7 and 8, and what we're going to look at today and really focus on, if you'll notice the top of your handout, is dealing with our enemies, dealing with your enemies. And as believers, we need to understand, and the message of the book of Esther is that even though you don't see the name of God anywhere in the book, not one time, you see the name of God. Yet the message of the book of Esther is that God is provident. He is there. He is providing. The word just simply means provision. That he is providing, that he is sovereign, that he's in control, that he's taking care of his own, and that even when the circumstances look as dire as they did for the Jewish nation, that the descendants had been passed on them, and clearly they had some serious enemies, particularly one named Haman, that God is sending a message in the book of Esther. And no matter how great your enemy is, and you will have enemies, they, they are subservient to me, God. I've told you many, many times, and it's a gr- two, great, two great theological points that you need to take with you for the rest of your life. Number one, there is a God. And number two, you ain't it. And we need to understand that. As Christians, We've come to the place where we've surrendered, a beautiful picture today with Josh being baptized, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what happens to us. We die to sin, we're buried, and we're raised to new life in Christ. And the book of Romans, particularly chapter 6, deals with living out as someone who's identified or been baptized into Jesus Christ. And throughout the writings of Paul, you will see that. In Christ, if any man in 2 Corinthians, any man's in Christ, he's a new creation, all things have passed away, all things have become new. Uh, Christ in me, hope of glory. Over and over and over again, Paul comes back to that metaphor that I am in Christ. I'm declared righteous because I am in him. Not because I'm a good guy, not because I've done a lot of good things, but because I'm in Christ. I'm born again. Thief of the cross, perfect example. He was a hardened criminal. And they were torturing him to death, crucifying him. And he turned to Jesus and said, well, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus told him, today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't do any good works. He didn't, get, he didn't get baptized. He didn't give any money. He didn't get off the cross and go do good things. But he went to heaven. It's all about Christ. The work he did on the cross. And then, as we saw last week, had he not risen from the dead, it would have been the worst moment in history 
But he did rise from the dead. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in Christ. Again, the writings of Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. That because he did rise from the dead, we can be free from the power of sin and death, our enemies. And so the other thing you see as you walk through Esther, it's a very uh, powerful book on a number of levels. Historically, we're seeing what, ha- what God did 500 years B.C. to preserve the nation of Israel to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant that he had promised. God always keeps his word. So when he said, there, Abraham, you through Isaac, through your wife Sarah, you will have an heir. We all know the story, and, and they tried Ishmael, and God said, no, no, that's not it. Sarah's going to have one. I know she's 90 years old, 100 years old. She's going to have a baby. God miraculously gave him Isaac. He said, You're, the heir is going to come through you, Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, and the 12 tribes. And God said, I'm, I'm going to do this thing. Well, then you get to the book of Esther, and Haman has had Xerxes, the emperor of Persia, the most powerful man on planet Earth, to write a decree. In the law of the Medes and the Persians, no one could annul that decree, including Xerxes. He's had Xerxes write a decree that the Jews are to be annihilated, every one of them. And the message of the book of Esther is, Xerxes may be powerful, he may be the most powerful man on planet Earth, but he ain't God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jehovah, Yahweh, Elohim, he is God. If you read the book of Daniel, it's put this way, the God of Daniel is God. Nebuchadnezzar says it, Darius says it, Belshazzar says it, Bethlehem They all say it. The God of the Hebrews, the God of Daniel is God. And I hope in our lives, as difficult as circumstances may be, and it couldn't have been any worse for the Jews at this point, as difficult as they may be around you, God is saying two things. I'm greater than your enemy, and I will provide. I was reading a cute story. It's like my, my, I have a dear aunt, my dear aunt Louise, you've heard me talk about it. She'll be 101 in November. On November 11th, she will be 101. And I was reading a story this week about a guy who turned 100. A reporter was interviewing him, and he said, he said, what's the one thing you want to share with anybody about, about being 100 and living this long? And he said, I don't have one, the 100-year-old man said, I don't have one enemy on planet Earth. And the reporter said, Wow, that's really great that you could say that. What, what do you attribute that to? And the 100-year-old man said, I outlived all of them. <laughs> we all have enemies. We have them now. We'll share in a moment who two of them are. You're not getting rid of. They're always going to be with you. And then there are others that, that we make, they, some that choose to be our enemies. There's a lot of things that you can learn from just reading Scripture. For example, if you go to the Psalms, and, and I encourage you, with the Psalms and the Proverbs, just to read them on a regular basis, just kind of as a form of worship. The Psalms were the Hebrews' hymn book. They sang them, they chanted them, they memorized them, sang certain ones at certain celebrations, Passover, whatever it might be. And then the Proverbs are just books of wisdom, and I've shared this with you before, but I think it's kind of uh, something that you can remember, and I I know my wife does it, and most of her family do it. Uh, my mother-in-law taught me, and you've heard me talk about my mother-in-law, and she went to be with Jesus, I don't know, five years ago or so, and uh, the most godly human being I've ever known was my mother-in-law. Not, not, you don't hear comments like that about mother-in-laws very often, but she 
loved Jesus, was so wise, was so just had like an eighth grade education, had a very hard life growing up. And my wife's the baby of, of 10 children. And well, mother-in-law taught me one time, she was reading and I was asking, she said, I'm reading Proverbs. It, it was the 11th of the month, like today. And I said, what are you reading? She said, I'm reading Proverbs 11. I said, oh, good. She goes, yeah, whatever the day of the month it is, I read the proverb for that day. For how many days are there in January? I know, I know it's hard, but hang with me. College students, we'll try you. How many, how, many, how many days in January? 31. So every day, how many proverbs are there? Very good, 31. So whatever the day of the month is, read that proverb. It's for daily wisdom. And trust me, your circumstances right now, may be different than they are in July, and that proverb, God, the Holy Spirit may use that proverb in a different way in your life, applicably for that moment in time, whatever you're going through at that moment. So just a little something, it's not going to take you long, that's just a little something you can do. As a devotional time, read the proverb for the day. And as you read through the Psalms, you see David encountering enemies on a, on a regular basis. We have enemies, and the feelings and the emotion, and there's a wide range of those that we want to, in many cases, who want to harm us or who have ill feelings toward us. Um, but if you read the Psalms, you'll see every bit of it. For example, David prayed for his enemies. We're going to deal with that before we're through with this. Uh, God commands, Jesus commands us to do that. David prayed for his enemies. David prayed about his enemies. We've all done that. In some cases, David asked God to destroy his enemies. And I bet you've done that. Not necessarily what God wants, but David, and I love the Bible, it's just honest. David was not perfect, but God is. He asked on occasion, God, destroy my enemies. He would ask God for wisdom and guidance in the face of his enemies. Or that God, and I love this thing, he was praying for his enemies one time, about his enemies, and here's what he prayed. Lord, keep me, David, in the way of righteousness. Please don't miss that. Because here's the one thing that God does not want you to have happen to you. We'll deal with this before we're done. Is to let your enemies cause you to slip into sin. Hebrews talks about it this way. There's a thing called the root of bitterness. Where I let another human being, because they have hurt me or trying to hurt me, I allow my displeasure with them, I'll be nice. Sometimes even that ramps up to hatred, even venom, that that person has been so cruel to me. And the Bible says, don't let that root of bitterness take hold in you because it'll lead to all kinds of negative ramifications in your life and the life of your family or others. And that's what David was praying. Lord, Saul was after him all the time trying to kill him. David hadn't done anything but be a good servant of Saul. And yet Saul was constantly trying to kill him. He prayed, Lord, keep me in the way of righteousness. In other words, my prayer as a believer is, Lord, Mike hates me. I'll use Mike because I know Mike doesn't hate me. Mike hates me. And all I've ever done is be good to him. I don't know why. But Lord, let me love him like you love him. Let me be righteous before him. Let him see Christ in me. Let him know how much I love him. Let me be righteous before him. 
And by so doing, he may not stop hating me, but he can't deny that I love him. That that's the one thing I want my enemies to know. That I love them. Tony Evans, a great pastor from Dallas that I read a lot, said this. God may take you to rock bottom so that you can discover that he, God, is the rock at the bottom. I love that. Because life is going to be hard at times. Again, we can go around the room and, and all of us, it may be right now, and in some cases I know it's right now, where people are going through very, very, very difficult times, hard times, some even facing possible death. And it, but it also may be in the future. And I love the way scripture teaches us that God says you can go to the depths of the sea and I am what? There. I'm there. You can go to the highest of the heavens and I am. So you can go to the moon. Guess what? I've already been there. God said I already went, you know, I made the thing. I went there. I got the t-shirt. It ain't that big a deal. You want to go to Mars? Fine, go to Mars. I, I spoke Mars into existence. You're going to get there and find out. Ain't much to it. That's the beauty of knowing who your God is. That no matter what you're facing, that he's, number one, he's already been there. Number one, he's ahead of you. He's in tomorrow. He's, he's working good on your behalf. And he simply wants you to trust him. The righteous live by faith. The theme of scripture. We've got to learn to wait on God. By the way, and I raise my hand and it's so hard, so hard at times to wait on God, God's timetable. We pray, we beg, we know God is God, and we know he loves us, and we know we can trust him, but we, sometimes it's like, God, you're asleep. Did you not hear me? God is saying, you've got to be still and know that I'm God, Randy, not you. I'm God, and you've got to trust me. And let me tell you who your two greatest enemies are as you sit here today. If you don't get anything else from today, I haven't said it in a long time, so I thought I ought to use it again. If you don't get anything else from what I have to say today, get these two things. Your two greatest enemies, number one, is Satan. Satan. The Bible calls him your greatest enemy. Jesus said about him, he comes only to kill, to steal, destroy He's the father of lies. He's the great deceiver. He seeks whom he may devour, Peter said. John called him the serpent of old. When Jesus rose from the dead, what Satan brought in in the Garden of Eden with original sin, when he convinced Adam and Eve to not trust God, to disobey God, not love God, and original sin entered the planet, Sin and death were brought with them. In conjunction with Satan, your greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death. When Jesus rose from the dead, all three were defeated. They were defeated. We fight from victory, not to victory. Jesus rose from the dead, and we are free in him. Sin still exists, and we still give in to it. But in Christ, I am positionally declared righteous in him. I am a child of God. I'm adopted into his family. I'm his boy, for good or bad. I'm his child. And nothing could change that. 
Sin has been conquered. I still commit sins, but the sin, my sin has been conquered by the resurrected Jesus Christ because I am in him. Death brought the planet Earth by sin. What Satan did in the Garden of Eden, the original sin, he brought death. I'm still physically going to die. But I love what Jesus said, John 11, after raising Lazarus from the dead, as he's in that process. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me, though he may die physically like Lazarus has done, yet he shall live. He who lives and believes in me will never die spiritually. I will die physically one day, unless I happen to be the generation that's aligned when Jesus comes back. I will die physically one day. But I am no longer dead spiritually and never will be, as I'm alive in Christ. And I am seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. So those enemies are defeated. And I, I need to live my life in that reality that greater is he who's within me than he that's within the world. The Holy Spirit is greater than Satan because how many gods are there? And Satan ain't it. It's not like when I, when I was a kid prior to being a Christian growing up, even in church, growing up in, in the, the theology that was taught in the place that I grew up, is that you had two great forces in the universe. This was even prior to Star Wars. You had two great forces in the universe. You had God and his angels who were sitting where? On one shoulder. If you watch Looney Tunes, you knew this was the case. And then on the other shoulder, you had the little devil with the pitchfork, right? And you had to decide, which one am I going to give in to? Am I going to be a good boy or am I going to be a bad boy? Which, what's it going to be? And it, took, it was years later after I got saved and someone was teaching me and I began to understand. Satan is not on an, a par with God. Satan is a created being. He was an angel that God created that fell. He's powerful, he's a great deceiver, he's really good at what he does, but he is not omniscient, and he is not omnipresent, and he is not God. So he, and he is defeated by the resurrected Jesus Christ. But he is your greatest enemy. And we have to understand as Christians, I'm not going to defeat Satan, but Jesus, what? Already has. So what I need to do is surrender my life to Christ, Trust him, follow him, and obey him, and not give in to what Satan tosses my way, the great liar, the great deceiver. What's your second greatest enemy? This will be interactive for a moment. What's your second greatest enemy? Yourself. Yourself. You ever look in the mirror and go, what are you doing? You ever think, Lord, I'm an embarrassment to you. I have. I do. I love the Sermon on the Mount for one reason. I love it for a lot of reasons, but I love it for one reason above all else. You know what Jesus was trying to accomplish with the Sermon on the Mount? If you haven't read it lately, go read it. Matthew 5, 6, 7. The great principles of the kingdom of God. He was trying to teach the Pharisees a lesson. And by extension, all of us. But here's the lesson. There's a lot of things that are taught in the Sermon on the Mount that are incredible. Like the Lord's Prayer, for example, and other things. But above all else, Jesus was trying to get them to understand, I'm going to raise the bar on what you understand sin to be. Because to them, it was all about 
do's and don'ts and a list and a law. If, if you can't walk this far from your house on the Sabbath and you can't do this, you can't do that. And then you could be righteous. If you, Paul said, I was blameless when it came to the law. I didn't, I didn't break the law. As a Pharisee, they thought they were sinless when it came to the law. Here's what Jesus said. You have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you thought about it, you're guilty. Uh-oh. What did every man in that crowd think at that point? And a woman. What did they think? I'm in trouble. Because I'm guilty. That's what Jesus wanted them to understand. You are guilty before God. So here's what you have to decide. Because your second greatest enemy is yourself. You got Satan and you got yourself. God wants you, assuming that you're born again, that you're a child of God, that you, you know Jesus as your Savior, you're a Christian, you're a Christ follower. So many different terms you can use. But if you're a Christian, God wants you every day to examine where you are. We talked about last week, each day being a dawning of a new, a new opportunity. Lord, what can I do for you today? To stop and regularly examine where you are spiritually. In 2008, there was a national pastor's convention. I didn't get invited, but anyway, I don't understand why. 2008, and, uh, in San Diego, John Ortberg, who's written some tremendous books, was, he had a conversation with a guy named Dallas Willard, who's also written a lot of books. So John Ortberg, Ortberg asked Dallas Willard this question. How do I determine how my spiritual life is doing? Again, these were two very well-known pastors, national speakers, writers. So he asked him, how do I determine how my spiritual life is doing? Dallas Willard said, you need to ask yourself two questions. Number one, am I growing more or less irritated these days? Number two, am I growing more or less discouraged these days? And I think those questions are so appropriate to where we are culturally as the body of Jesus Christ and individual Christians. If your answer to those questions is I'm growing more irritated and more discouraged, then you need to stop and examine where you are on your personal ministry identity. See, if God has saved you, you're in the ministry. You may not have a cool title like I do. A knucklehead, that was my official title. You may not have a cool title, but if you're born again, you're a believer, you're a priest, and you're in the ministry. All ministry means is service. And when, we live in a, when you live in a culture that's turned its back on God, like the United States of America has, then the opportunities are, are just everywhere to lovingly share Jesus Christ, who he is, what he can do. You will have enemies Jesus said so himself. The Apostle Paul, when talking about himself, and I love, we're talking about the Apostle Paul, who wrote so much of the New Testament. You know what he said about himself? What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body, this body of death, sin? He struggled with sin. I love that. 
mentioned earlier, I love the honesty of Scripture. Read Psalm 51. I'm talking about reading Psalms this week. When you get a chance, read Psalm 51. First time I ever taught, I was in high school. First time I ever taught a Bible study, it was Psalm 51. Psalm 51 was a psalm David wrote after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he had her husband murdered. And he wasn't where he should have been. Pretty much the lowest you could get. And he was a man after God's own heart. The greatest king Israel ever had. And he struggled with sin. You know why I love that? Because I struggle with sin. And you do too if you're honest. And that's why these questions are so important. I'm not going to get irritated. I'm not going to get discouraged. And I find myself that way. And God says, be anxious for nothing. By the way, that's a command, not a request. God says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, bring it to me in prayer. Oh, okay, let me try that. I hadn't tried that one, God. Let me try that one. Trust you and bring it to you. And then let's see what you're going to do. Rather than fretting and worrying, just a quick show of hands if you're willing to. How many of you worried about something this week? I don't have enough hands to put them up. I'm, I'm running out of fingers and toes. Just if I try to enumerate all of them. And God says, stop it. It's sin. That's your enemy. You're giving in to yourself. You got to trust me. And I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. You got to trust me. Now let's get to Esther. Chapter 7. Guess what? We ain't finishing this outline today. And you're all going, shock! I can't believe it! I know Rihanna, she never plans over two weeks ahead because she knows it's not going to make any difference. He ain't finishing that outline. All right. Jesus said, you're going to have enemies. And I love the way he put it to them. The world is going to hate you because it what? Hated me. First, if you call yourself Christian, you know what the word means? Little Christ. Little Christ. That You're supposed to be like Christ. You're supposed to represent him. Uh, Paul said you're an ambassador for Christ. You bear that title. I love that title. I'd rather have that title than, than President of the United States, particularly right now. I'd love to have that title. Ambassador for Christ. Wherever you go, that's who you are. And Jesus said, the world will not like that. Satan will not like that. Satan has one desire for you. Defeat you. Keep you worried. Keep you discouraged. And, and, so, and your flesh is always going to gravitate towards sin. You've got to surrender to the Holy Spirit. You've got to trust God. You've got to be excited about every day as an opportunity to share Jesus Christ in some way with somebody. It may be the same people every day. Maybe your wife, your husband, every day. Your children. If you have grown children, every day. Trying to help, trying to serve, trying to encourage, getting frustrated, needing to go outside and shoot basketball and be alone. That's okay. Keep bringing it back to God. Keep bringing it back. My wife asked me not long ago, she said something, we were talking about you know, things changing. I, get, I love spring. October is my favorite month because you can play golf in October. The weather's still good and the grass ain't wet. And you still got grass. But I love spring. That picture of everything new in Christ. And I love working in the yard. I spent, like last Sunday, Easter, Easter Sunday, I spent the entire afternoon blowing leaves in my backyard. And Mary's like, well, why do you like to do that? And I said, because you're not going to come in. No, that's not what I said. <laughs> I love working in the yard. 
because nobody's going to bother me. Nobody's going to come out because they don't want to work out. Nobody wants to come out there and help. Nobody's going to bother me. And I spend hours. It may be down on my hands. I love to get on my hands and knees and pull weeds out of my flower. But that's going to happen this week. I love doing that, even though I, it's, when you get to be my age and you get down and you've been down on your hands and knees for like three hours pulling weeds, you can't get up. I haven't told the story, and I won't go into detail, but I was mowing my back. It's a ditch in my backyard. A few people know this story. And I was dumping, I dumped my grass in the ditch, and I was drop, you know, dumping the back, and I dropped it, and it went down to the ditch. But it didn't go all the way down. I thought, well, I'll get that. And I stepped off to get it, and guess what? Those leaves that were there that I thought were something else, those were just leaves. And I ended up in the bottom of that ditch, and I could not get out. And I said one thing to myself. I am not calling Chris Ellison. I, th- I thought about Steve or Chad, and I said, no, nah, I'm not calling anybody. I'm gonna, God and I are going to get me out of this ditch. I'd start up this big tree. I'd start up the branch, and it was slick with moss and mud, and I'd fall right back down. So it took me about an hour. I just walked along the ditch and said, well, let's just see what the neighbor's backyards look like. And I walked the ditch for about 30 minutes, and I finally found an old dead tree that I could crawl up. And I know they're thinking, what's that crazy dude doing back there? And I I got out of it. But I love working in my yard, and the other reason is I spend all that time just praying, cutting grass, edging, whatever I'm doing, weed eating, pulling weeds, trimming bushes. I just love doing it, and I love just me and God talking and being convicted and examining my life. I spent a lot of time examining my own life and praying for you guys in many, many ways. That's what God wants you to do. So as you get to chapter 7 of Esther, here's what you're going to see. Number one on your handout, protection of God from your enemies. Understand it's always going on. This is an allegory also in a picture, a historical event, but also an allegory God's picturing for us. We're in chapter 7. Here's what God is about to do. Contextually, we remember the circumstances if you get to the end of chapter 6. While they were still, chapter 6, verse 14, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. So Haman's on top of the world. Everything looks good for him, but it's about to turn. What you're going to see in chapter 7 is God is about to totally reverse the circumstances. Haman, the enemy, of all the Jews, is going to get executed on the same gallows he had built to impale Mordecai. They're going to impale Haman. And the message God sends is, no matter how great your enemy is, he is defeated by your God. Never forget that. So the first thing you do in understanding the protection you have God from your enemies, and you will have enemies beyond Satan and yourself, enemies. Number one, you take them to God. Look at verse one. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, just the three of them. And on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. What is your request up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. Queen Esther answered and said, if I found favor in your sight, O king, and if, I, if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed Verse 3 and 4 are very key. Destroyed, killed, annihilated. 
Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held, held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Xerxes answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and the enemy is this wicked Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. I bet he was. Esther simply, in verses 1 through 4, she courageously, finally identifies herself as Jewish. Remember now, she's queen of Persia. Xerxes' queen. And Xerxes has signed a decree that every Jew in my kingdom is to be. Notice the words she uses, annihilated, killed, destroyed. The exact same words that were in the edict that Xerxes signed. I guarantee you he hadn't even read it. You ever hear that lately? He hadn't even read it. Haman brought it to him and said, you need to sign this. We've got to get rid of these people. They're not doing what they need to do, and I'll give you all this money. And Xerxes said, he signed it and said, let's go drinking. So she says, she says, these are, notice the verses one through four. These are, quote, my people, we, my people and I. I am part of this group. So she asked, verse 3, Xerxes, her request. Show me and show my people favor. Talked about this before. The word favor means grace. We simply go to God, a God of grace, and say, Lord, thank you for giving me something I don't deserve. And so she's saying to Xerxes, show me and my people favor, spare our lives. Verse 4, she describes the enemy, Haman's plan to destroy kill, to annihilate. I want you to not miss this picture because you mentioned it earlier, but it's important. Words like that is Satan's desire for human beings, to destroy them, to have them annihilated, to have them killed. But if you're in Christ, he can't do that to you. You're born again. He's defeated. Now, he can still tempt you, and he does. But he is a defeated enemy. He cannot kill you. He cannot destroy you. He cannot annihilate you because Jesus Christ, your Savior, who died for your sins, was buried and rose again. The gospel in a nutshell. And he defeated Satan. And in verse 4, Esther issues a challenge to Xerxes, just a little reminder. You can wipe up out all the Jewish people, but your enemy is never going to be able to compensate you for that loss, Xerxes, despite how much money he may promise you. If there's not enough gold and silver to pay for this, this is racial genocide, Xerxes. You're about to wipe out an entire race of people. There's not enough money to pay you for that, despite what Haman may offer you. So verse 5 and 6. In verse 5, Xerxes is beside himself. Who would dare do this? And then verse 6, Esther boldly confronts Haman, who's sitting right there, by opening, by declaring before Xerxes and denouncing Haman, this is the man. And Haman is terrified. The word terrified in verse 6 in Hebrew is like fear on steroids. It's the terror before an angel or a deity in the Old Testament. It's the word you see. Overwhelmed and trembling in fear. In other words, God says, you take your enemies 
to me. And ultimately, they will understand the fear of God. We understand the fear of God, that he's awesome. We respect him. We love him. He's our, that's why Jesus taught us how to pray, our Father. Not our big guy in the sky that's going to get you one day, but our Father, an intimate term, a family term, a relational term. So he says, you take your enemies to me, and they will discover that there's only one God, and his name is I Am. Verse 7, you not only take them to God, you leave them with God. Verse 7. The king Xerxes arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine, and he went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. Xerxes, Xerxes is incensed at what's going on, and he just he says, i got to get out. And he gets out, and he walks out in the garden. I want to make sure you see the picture. Here's Xerxes. What am I going to do about this decree that I'm going to wipe out all the Jews? And, and, and Esther is one of them, and she's asking me not to do that. We're going to talk more about that later. But please, I want you to notice verse 7. Xerxes has left. He's out in the palace garden walking around. Who does that leave at the banquet? Esther and Haman. And Haman, who hates the Jews, descendant of the Malachite, we talked about this before, he hates them. He's wanting to wipe out the race. And now he's doing what in verse 7? Please see the words. Do you see them? He's begging, pleading for his life from a Jew. How do you think that made him feel? Think he liked that? That he's having to beg a Jew. And culturally, not just a Jew, but a Jewish woman. That he's having to beg for his life. Because he knows she's got the power. And again, the name of God is not mentioned. But whose of these people belong to? The Jews. They're God's people. And Haman is getting the message. He's pleading for his life. Because he... Before Queen Esther, because he knows Xerxes left hacked off, uh, is a nice way to put it. And he knows Xerxes is not happy with me, even though I'm his prime minister. Verse 8. I'm going to read this and then we're going to be done today. Verse 8. When the king returned Xerxes from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was, begging for his life. Then the king said, will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, it's standing at the house of Haman. The king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. The king's wrath subsided. Xerxes sees a way out. He comes back in because the position that Haman was in begging for his life, he says he's assaulting the queen, like attempting to rape her. The Persian law forbade anybody from getting within seven paces of the queen of Persia. So it says, verse 8, they covered Haman's face. That simply is a sign of disgrace, shame, Condemnation, 
and doom. He's a condemned man at this point. And they take Haman and they impale him on the exact same gallows he had built to impale Mordecai. Here's the message as we wrap up today. You have enemies. The Bible says in Galatians, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. God is a God of grace. We'll talk about this next week. But what God wants for your enemies and what you should want for your enemies is for them to become family members. What did Jesus say? Pray for your enemies. Ask God to bless them. Pray for those that despitefully use you. That's not a normal human reaction. That's a Christ-like reaction. Our reaction would be, Haman got what he deserved. In this case, he does. But the message is, who was in control here, Haman or God? God was. And he was going to preserve his people because he said the Messiah is going to be Jewish. So there had to be Jews for Jesus to be Jewish, for the Messiah to be Jesus. And for us, applicably, our God is above all. And our enemy, Satan, is defeated. Our flesh has been redeemed. And we don't have to give in. And our earthly enemies, we take them to God and we leave them with God. And then we just pray for them. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, we do thank you that we have a God who is real. That we just, it's not just religion, we come and do this because this is our religious thing to do. But you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're the God who sent Jesus of Nazareth to die in our place and rise from the dead so that we could be set free. Lord, if there's somebody in our room today or somebody that's watching who realized for the first time Jesus died for me, this would be the moment they would, like Josh, say, I believe Jesus died on the cross for me and I'm a sinner. Lord, forgive me. Save me. Because you're a God of grace and God who saves people. We thank you, Father, for Jesus' death. And just pray as we think about our enemies that we can lovingly live Christ before them and pray for them. We commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we close out our time together.